Hello, and welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing special education law and student assistant teams. I want to start every podcast with a fun disclaimer. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. This podcast is scheduled to be broadcast on August 2022, and the information will be up to date as of that time. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates to the law in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes only. While our host and our guests are attorneys and often non-attorney advocates, the information presented is legal information and it does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As I noted, I'm Clint Adams, legal director, and I'm your host. Today, I am joined by Dina Cummings. Dina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Clint. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, What office do you work at at Legal Aid? Well, Clint, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about special education law since it's my passion, and I am out of our Beckley office. As you noted, special education law is your passion. How long have you been doing special education law? So I have actually been with Legal Aid of West Virginia for 19 years, but I have been doing special education law for the past 15 years. And what is it that brings that passion for that kind of work to you? Being able to help um, children have a voice um, has been very important to me. Um, A lot of times as adults, we don't allow children to have voices, uh, which I think is something that we, we make a mistake in doing. But Um, I get to represent kids. Um, I get to tell adults that, you know, that they have to pay attention to what these kids say and what they need. And as a mother of five, and I've always loved kids, I think it's just, it's an area of the law that I just really um, excel in because I I do have that passion for kids and making sure that their, their rights are protected. Now you work out of the Beckley office. What areas do you serve um, from the Beckley office? Okay. So I serve uh, 12 of the Southern counties in West Virginia. What's something that's fun to do in in those in that area? So I think one of the most unique things that we have in Beckley that is a fun place to go is that we actually have um, an old coal mine that you can tour. It's called the Exhibition Coal Mine. And so you can take your children, uh, your family members, whatever, and go to um, our, it's New River, uh, New River Park here in Beckley. And they have the Exhibition Coal Mine where you can ride a train deep into the mine and it's run by former um, coal miners so they can tell you a little bit about what it's like to be a coal miner and and to work in those conditions which i think is pretty cool wow that does sound pretty neat i wasn't aware of that and i may very well take the family down there sometime oh you should and at halloween they have the haunted um exhibition coal mine so they do something scary in there and at christmas they even have an uh, ice skating rink Now, let's talk about special education law, as you noted, something you're passionate about, something you've been doing for quite a while. When we talk about special education, what exactly does that mean? So special education law, the actual definition is specialized instruction for students with disabilities 
and services for those students at no cost to the parent. There's a misconception about special education uh, and what it means. A lot of people correlate special education with intellectual disabilities, but it's a whole lot more. Special education covers a whole lot more than just intellectual disabilities. And in West Virginia, giftedness is actually covered under special education. So by gifted, I guess let's start with what does that mean exactly? So there's specific criteria to, to meet the standards to get um, special education services. And with giftedness, you have to have a certain IQ um, and then you have to be advanced in so many areas. What are other examples of students that would qualify for special education services? A lot of times uh, students that have autism can get special education services, students with ADHD, with anxiety. Uh, We were actually just talking about that this morning. Uh, We've seen a a rise in anxiety and depression in students because of the pandemic, you're seeing a lot more kids qualify for special education services because of anxiety and depression. So if I'm a parent, how would I, what would cause me to believe that a child should qualify for special education services? As an advocate, we really can pinpoint some like key areas that you would start to notice for your child. Some would be a refusal to go to school It might be uh, missing a lot of school. It might be uh, their grades have declined. It could be as simple as your child is really withdrawn and, you know, is not participating in social activities. One we see a lot of is discipline cases. So, and what I mean by that is the school's calling you a lot because your child's misbehaving at school and they're saying, hey, come pick up your kid. Um, Or your child's getting lots of disciplinary referrals or what, what in West Virginia we call DRFs. Um, or your child's being suspended a lot, or they're talking about expelling your child. So if your child has some type of disability, and it could be an emotional um, problem, it could be a behavioral problem, it might be something that you just suspect, but you're not real sure that your student or your child has that diagnosis, but you're seeing all these, these warning signs, then that's something that you need to definitely talk to the school about. If any of those things are affecting their education, they need to be looked at. So let's talk a little bit about that. I know as, as an educator during the pandemic, um, I probably didn't know that that my child's activity was hyperactive, you know, and I come to find that out later as we return to more in-person learnings for my daughter, right? She has ADD and I didn't know that during the time. Parents often don't know what's normal or expected for a four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old child. So they don't necessarily know where those developments are. Who's responsible for determining that a child is eligible for special education? services? So the law is very specific and actually states that it's the school district's responsibility to locate and identify students that need special education services. So it, it would be your, your child's teacher, your child, the counselor at the school. It could be the principal, the vice principal, anybody that's that has contact with your child. They are actually responsible for identifying, hey, this student has some type of need. This is, you know, student struggling, whether it's academically or socially or functionally, they're required to refer that child to what we call the student assistant team, which is the team that will look at the student, where they're at right now, and are there any supports that the student might need. As a parent, do you have to wait for the school to make that decision if you talk to a doctor or you talk to somebody else and you think your child might be eligible? Absolutely not. So a parent can request of, uh, that their child be evaluated for special edu- education services any t- at any time. Biggest thing with that, though, is that the law is very specific with that as well, and you must put it in writing. If you don't put it in writing, then the school can just ignore it. 
And do you have to send that by certified mail whenever you put that in writing? You don't, but I recommend that you do. Um, I think you should always keep a copy of that letter. Make sure that the letter is dated because that also triggers your due process um, rights. And there's uh, timelines that the school has to follow. So if you have a that letter and it's dated and you have the certified mail receipt, you can show, hey, I, this is when I sent it. This is when they received it. Um, so if that they don't start the process, then you can go to an advocate or an attorney to say, hey, I've requested this and they just ignored me. So we talk about due process. That's a term that attorneys were familiar with. The law can't deprive you of certain things without due process of law. What does that mean in a special education setting? It just basically means that there's a process and a procedure that the school has to follow. And if they don't, then the parent has the right to file some type of complaint um, against the school district so that they can get those remedies for their child. And when we talk about these things, this may be a result of your child's diagnosis. How much medical information do you have to share with the school if you're going to be asking for special education? The school districts have lots of obligations when it comes to identifying students that have might need special education services. And one of the things is, is once they've identified a student and they've decided that they want to evaluate the student for special education services, they're required to do their own set of evaluations. If you're going to go for actual special education services, um, some of the um, eligibility criteria does require that you provide that documentation of a disability. An example of that is ADHD. However, with ADHD, the way that the uh, regulations read, um, the the school psychologist can actually diagnose ADHD. But if you have a, a child that has anxiety or depression or even autism, it can be beneficial and it can't, in, in some instances, it is needed to provide something that just says your child has this diagnosis by your doctor. And regardless of whether you have to submit it for them to qualify, all the information you can provide the school is beneficial. The more they know about your child, what medications they're on, what their medical conditions are, that just helps them, number one, qualify the student. And if the student is qualified, write a much better plan because they have to write the plan based on the whole student. And so I, I personally think, and as an advocate, the more information I can provide the school, the better. Is the school then going to share that information with others, or do they have requirements then to continue to keep that information confidential? They still have requirements to keep that, that information conf confidential. And we have been in eligibility meetings before where the families have said, you know, we would prefer that this documentation be, be locked up and that not every teacher have access to this, this report. And, and the teachers don't, unless they specifically request it or the parents specifically request that the, every teacher reads the evaluation. So you talked about the eligibility meeting. What is that? Once you have identified a student that might need special education services, you go into a process where the, the school district has to do a complete evaluation, and it should be a thorough evaluation. We actually, the term we use is multidisciplinary evaluation. And basically just what that means is anything that you suspect the student has issues with, you need to be testing it. So if it's speech or if it's physical problems like the handwriting, uh, that would be occupational therapy. If they are having trouble walking, then it needs to be physical therapy evaluations. But whatever you, you can think of, they, they need to really do an in-depth evaluation. Once that evaluation's over, then a team of people come together and we have what you call the eligibility committee meeting, where you review all of those evaluations and any of the documentation that the parent brings to the table. And then you look at the specific criteria and see if the student 
meets that criteria and is eligible for special education services or an IEP. Who makes up that team of people you're talking about? So the eligibility committee team must include the parent or the adult student because sometimes uh, we do have students that don't get identified until they're much older. Um, So they need to be there. The parent or guardian needs to be there. The district representative, which can be the special ed director, a special ed specialist, or the principal has to be there. The referring teacher, someone that is able, not just able, but qualified to to read all of those evaluations that were completed by the student. So if you have a, a, a psychological evaluation and there's not a school psychologist there um, or someone else that is actually qualified to read those, then that's an improper team meeting. Um, so like if it's you've, you've evaluated for speech, the speech therapist needs to be there. And then you also need a gen- general educator. When you talk about the adult students, is there an age that the students can or should be a part of this process? Uh, you know, I'm thinking a four-year-old may or may not understand or, or be able to focus long enough to to attend a meeting such as that. Where's kind of the age on that? So usually by the time they're going into high school, we try to encourage them to attend as many of their meetings as possible. Once they turn 18, then, you know, it's, it's up to them. It's their plan. Um, their parents no longer have the legal authority to be there without the, without them saying, hey, I want my parent there. Um, a lot of it has to do with the maturity of the child and and the team um, kind of looks at, you know, should the student be here? But by high school, the reason we do that is because if a student wants to go on to college, once they leave high school, it's up to them to initiate any type of, of services. Their IEP ends once they graduate from high school. But if they go on to college, that's Section 504. It's a different area of the law, but the, the, the student has to um, initiate that. The college does not have the same child find uh, requirements that that the public school system do, does. But a lot, a lot of times what we do is like particularly kids that have behavioral issues, what I do is we talk about the meat of the evaluations or, or if we're in an IEP meeting, the IEP, and some of those really difficult things that are hard to, to listen to, even as a parent, much less if you're the child. Um, and then we call the student in later after we've gone through a lot of that stuff, because you never want a child to feel bad about themselves. And unfortunately, when you're when you're in this situation, there are some deficiencies and there are some problems and the, the student does need help. And that can be very um, hard on a, on a child. It can it can really mess up their self-esteem. So I, as an advocate, always take that into consideration and make sure that this tough stuff we talk about, we don't talk about in front of them. But we bring them in when we're developing the plan so they can tell us, that's going to work for me. That's not going to work for me. This is what I need. Um, so that's that's kind of how we determine whether or not a student should be in there. So we're throwing uh, around some jargon. Jargon is a fancy word that says fancy terms, to be honest yes. with you. Um, so we're throwing around words like IEPs, numbers. We're even throwing around numbers, right? We got 504s. <laughs> we got letters, IEPs. What do those mean and where do they come from? A Section 504 plan is actually covered under the Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And that is a different type of plan that does not is not dis- disability specific. And what I mean by not disability s- specific, all you have to show is that someone has a disability or suspected disability and it's affecting their daily living. And then there's some qualifications that kind of go through what exactly, you know, what parts of daily living are being affected. And one of one of which can be learning. Um, so you can have a student that has a 504 plan. And the way the 
the easiest way to think about a 504 plan is it has a lot to do with access. Can the student access their education with a 504 plan? So if you have a child, a great example is a lot of students that are in a wheelchair, they might have a perfectly normal or high IQ and don't need specialized instruction, uh, may not have any behavior problems or anything like that. They just simply have a physical disability that does not allow them to access the school building the way other students do. That would qualify under a 504. An IEP is an individual education plan, and it is under IDEA, which is the Individual's Disability Education Act, and that um, you, just, you just love you just love those, uh, those letters. Just mo- lots, just... yes, lo- lots of letters, lots of acronyms. But an IEP is that plan that's put in place that is specially des- designed instruction, and so it is disability specific. And when I mean that is there are certain what we call exceptionalities under the law that you have to qualify under to actually get an IEP. Now, when we talk about that, one of the things that you mentioned was it has to have a disability and it affects education. So if you have a child that has, I don't know, attention deficit disorder or, or some other um, anxiety, does that mean that they're going to qualify for special education services? Not necessarily, because just because you have a disability doesn't mean you necessarily need any type of plan. There are lots of students out there that have ADHD that that are able to function in the school setting just fine without any assistance. With an IEP, some of the other criteria is you have to meet one of those eligibility criteria, but you also, that disability has to be impacting your education and you need special education services. So those are the, the next steps for the eligibility criteria. Let's talk about the special education services. Now we have a student that comes in, maybe has ADD, it's actually affecting the education. They're gonna get some level of special education services. Does that mean automatically they get an IEP or are there other plans that they may put in place before that? Not necessarily. Uh, you might not jump straight to an IEP. The district comes together and the in the initial place that they come together to see what needs to be done is the student assistant team. And the student assistant team is comprised of um, each school has what they call a, a SAC coordinator because uh, the student assistant team, we, we make, break that down into an acronym as well, which is called the SAT. Um, so you have the SAT coordinator, the teacher of the student, the parent, um, a lot of times it's the principal, and they come together, whether it's the parent that's requested that evaluation or someone at the school that has said, hey, this kid is struggling, they're gonna come together at the SAT meeting and they're gonna look at the documentation that they have and whatever the parent report is, whatever the parent brings to the table saying, hey, this is this is not working out with my, with my child. And what the SAT does is they make a determination on whether or not to go ahead and send the student on to the next level to be evaluated for a possible 504 plan or an an IEP, or they can decide, hey, let's try some accommodations through the SAT and see if we can get the student back on track. And that's more than appropriate. Uh, we once you do that, um, you have to to look at that plan every 45 days because you can't stay in SAT forever. But I've seen really great SAT plans that have corrected some um, issues that a student or difficulties that a student is having um, and puts them back on the the right path and doesn't need to be referred. The SAT does have to look at if that parent does request specifically that their their child be evaluated. They have to through the SAT. Um, if they decide not to evaluate, um, they have to provide that parent what we, with what we call a prior written notice 
And basically what a prior written notice is, is just saying, hey, we're not going to test, we're not going to evaluate your, your kid and here's why. But they have to put that in writing for the parent. Does this happen at the same time as the eligibility meeting or do they have an eligibility meeting? Because it seems like there's some of the same players would be on the, the student assistance team that would be in the eligibility meeting. Yes. So it's it's two different meetings. Um, the SAT is actually where you start. You don't even get to the eligibility meeting until you decide the SAT determines, hey, yes, we're going to refer this student on for, for evaluations. If the SAT determines they are going to evaluate the student, then it's sent on to the special ed department who initiates that evaluation process and they start doing that, what I talked about earlier, that multidisciplinary disciplinary evaluation to determine whether or not the student qualifies for an IEP or does the, does the student qualify for a 504 plan. So the SAT team is the first thing that would, that would be the first meeting you would be called to would be a group of, of the people that you outlined would be there. Then they would decide we need to test this person for special, this child for special education, or they might say we don't need to test and here's why. And then you talked about they can make some accommodations even as the SAT team, even for students, that would be even for students who aren't eligible for special education? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. So that's for any student. What are some examples that you've seen that, that a SAT team may come up with uh, and put in a SAT plan that may help someone who doesn't need special education? I had a, it was a kindergarten little boy and he was having some issues and it was a lot of organization um, issues um, and it was simple things like he couldn't remember to take his pencil from each each one of the stations. So the principal that we were working with had actually worked at a, at a behavioral center um, for children. And so she had some really great ideas. And one of the simple things she did was she actually had the teacher tie a pencil to each station. So he didn't have to worry about going from each station with a pencil. He was only in kindergarten. We didn't need to really worry about that at that point. He just needed to be able to do the work and he just could not remember. So that was an easy fix. So we're going to put the, the pencil there, get him in the habit of, hey, I've got this pencil and, and worry about other things. The other thing we did in that case is that he loved computer time. So they found that if they gave him computer time first, he was going to have behaviors after computer time. So they would make him earn his way up to the computer time as a way, as a reward. And that worked really well for him and it de decreased his behaviors. As you said, that gets evaluated then in 45 days. Can they renew that same plan if you have someone who may not be eligible for special education? Um, they shouldn't. You can do it more than one one forty five day session. Like so if you you've in the first forty five days you've identified maybe one or two things you want to target. And then when you go back to do that review, you look at that what you targeted and if if it's improved, but you're not quite there, but you think you could could be in the next forty five days, um, then you just move on. Or if you have, say, you know that there's like 10 things that this kid needs help with, but we're going to start, you're not going to focus on 10 things. That's just craziness. So you focus on those two. And then at the next 45 day mark, you're like, hey, we, we were able to, to knock out these two. Let's focus on another two. You can do that. But they cannot, the school districts cannot hold a student indefinitely in the SAT process. If the child's been in the SAT process for six months, then somebody, something's not going the way it should. And that student needs to be referred on for evaluation for a, um, a 504 plan or an IEP, something that's a little bit more in depth. Now, when we talk about the SAT plans in the law, almost everything is adversarial, right? When we file lawsuits, we go to court, it's one person versus another person. Is that the idea behind the SAT plan? Is this, you know, the, 
parent versus or the student versus the school district. So it's supposed to be a team effort to where you're as a team collaborating and making the best decisions for this for the student. I will say that having represented families for almost 15 years, it, it varies. There are some times that the parent feels very supported by the school and there are times that the parent feels very unsupported by the school. It can be very intimidating as a parent. Our approach in our program is what we call back to the table. So we always go back to the table and try to resolve issues at the lowest level and try to repair, if there is any type of rift between the parent and the school, try to repair that to the best that we can. What advice would you give to a parent who, who comes you know, early on in the school year, they get a notice from the school that says, we want to meet with you, we want to have a student assistance team meeting. What advice would you give to a parent in that situation? My biggest advice is just is be prepared and, and it's it's okay to take in your documentation. Uh, we have uh, what we call care notebooks that we provide to families. And in that care notebook, it allows families to put medical records, diagnoses, medications that their students been on, any evaluations they've had. It's okay to take your own book in there. You know, it, go in there with a list of questions. If you're, you know, if you have cons your own concerns um, about your child, you know, go in there with the list of questions that you want answered. Um, because that's your time to to ask those questions of the school system. And don't feel intimidated. As a parent, you are the uh, expert in your child. And nobody knows your child like you do. And even if the school, the, the teacher's with your child, you know, eight hours a day, it's still your child and you've had them their whole entire life. So you understand your child. And it's okay to say, you know, I don't agree with that. Go in with your questions, go in with your own documentation. Don't feel intimidated. They they put their pants on the same way you put your pants on just because, you know, we have a lot of families that feel like school districts are more educated or that they know they know more about the education system. And, and sure, yeah, there's lots of things that even as an advocate, I go in and I rely heavily on a teacher or a school psychologist to explain to me, like, you know, particularly teaching methods. I didn't go to school to learn how teach, teaching methods, but I can tell you what my daughter needs. I can tell you what works for my daughter and what doesn't work for my daughter. So when you talk about that not being intimidated, right, I think a lot of parents feel like they're being called to the principal's office, right? Yeah. They're, and they're going <laughs> to sit in the, oftentimes these meetings happen in a principal's office or close by in a conference room nearby. Um, they may be sitting across the table from people who are wearing suits or who have ties on. And as you noted, may have more education than than maybe you have. But I think, as you noted, the, the important thing is to assert yourself as the parent of the child, that I, I know things about my child that you don't know, and let's work together. Now, when we talk about um, coming up with some of those ideas um, and, and we go to this SAT team, what are we talked about some of the things that can be implemented. One thing I think also to keep in mind is the school district has has a number of students there, right? They have couple of hundred students in a school and you have one student that you're most worried about, do they have to do what's in your child's best interest for each person, each child that's there? They do. They do. They have to, when you're at that meeting, it's all about your child. It's not about Joe or Bobby or Sue, um, the other kids in the classroom. Now we talked about some of the things that come from a SAT plan that do, do the student assistant team plans, the SAT plans. Do those sometimes involve like individual education? May there be situations where they'll pull a child out for specialized education during that time, even if they're not eligible for special education services? 
So they can because we have a like a lot of reading programs that they'll they'll pull students out for that don't necessarily need an IEP or a 504 plan, um, and they can actually. Um, it wouldn't be specialized instruction through your SAT, and if it is, then you definitely need to push them to move that plan to an IEP if it's actually specialized instruction. Um, but there are th strategies that teachers can use, like say that your child's behind in reading. It may be that your the the regular ed teacher puts them in a different reading group in the classroom. Um, it might be that they spend a little bit, they do get a little bit more extra time. Um, being able to read the material or answer the questions. Um, the same thing with math. You know, it might be you just moving them into another um, classroom or not classroom, but another group within your classroom. Um, and then if you have any of those um, specialized uh, reading or um, math groups, um, sometimes they can start with that. Like, let's give them a little bit more extra time, you know, with, with the, the reading specialist to see if that, that helps. Okay. Well, Dina, thank you so much for taking the time. We've talked about a lot of important issues here for parents and students as they're looking at their uh, education for their children. Um, and I want to thank you for sharing your information today. Well, it was my pleasure. More information about this is available on our website at legalaid.wv.org. Friends, if you're scheduled to meet with your child's school, keep in mind that you have a certain knowledge about your child that nobody else has. Certainly, the educators may know more about special education options and childhood development. Nonetheless, in order to achieve the best results for your child, everyone needs to share the information in a spirit of cooperation. Together, you can work with your child's school in order to give your child the best opportunity to succeed. Each child has their own unique set of skills and traits. Working with your child's school openly, honestly, and candidly will create the best environment to allow your child to meet their highest potential. Thank you for joining us. As noted, more information on this topic is available on our website, legalaidwv.org. This has been a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.